Uh, yeah, I'm recording. Hello, universe. Um, have I smoked any weed today? Oh, yeah, I took a bong hit this morning, first thing. All right, I've only had one bong hit today, so before we get uh, more than 17 seconds into this, oop, we already are. I gotta go take more bong hits. Bye. And yes, I misspoke, so I'm here to apologize. I did not take bong hits. I dabbed concentrates. Precision of language matters. You're welcome. Pause. Um, and I wonder what colloquialism trigger evolves to verb up the actions of something like bong hits. You know, the old, well, we take bong hits and we take shits. We don't leave shits. I mean, do those things just emerge from usage of conversational, situational uh, uh, repetition? Why do we take bong hits instead of pull them or um, rip them? Actually, we do rip bong hits. I don't know. Apparently, I'm about four bong hits short of being where I want to be, so I'm going to go uh, take more bong hits. Wait. Oh, man. I apologize. I am going to go dab more concentrate until I can completely black out the last minute and a half of conversation. <laughs> okay, now there is a stoner conversation. If a product came on the market that allowed you to erase chunks of time in, say, the last 24 hours of your life, something in your short-term memory could be annihilated, thus creating a situation in which you never can even know the event had occurred, would you use it? And if you're saying no, are you saying no, never? You would never, ever have used it, not once? There's no moment in life that if you could just erase it from the existence of your previous recall memory, you wouldn't be better off for it? Because... That spelling bee day in sixth grade? Hmm. Talk about an event of a very unexpected nature cascading across your life like dominoes knocking you down consistently? R-O-T-E, baby. Yeah, you know me. Okay. So, well. Hmm. Is that enough concentrate? At least I'm using the proper vernacular to describe the activity I'm doing while you're on pause. I'd say no. Pause. Uh, <clears throat> to all you weed newbies or weed virgins, if you're uh, doing life wrong, but if, uh, if you are looking to enjoy a sativa, I'm going to give you two that uh, you should ooh, be always willing to say yes to. And I did just burn myself on my titanium nail. Thanks for asking, all you pros. Um, <clears throat> damn, that hurt. All right. Actually, that's the fucking weird thing. That actually didn't hurt, but when I looked down and said that hurt, I can see the white spot forming where I fucking am going to blister up. That is going to hurt. <sighs> all right. So, number one rule of dabbing, know where your fucking hot tools are and do your absolute, absolute measurements of necessity to keep them from causing chaos like burning you or setting yourself on fire or your house on fire or anything on fire. I have gotten so lucky not to have done that because this is not a rule I'm good at. I just proved it. But the only thing I've ever really hurt is myself. And uh, I've been extremely lucky not to burn my house down in many ways. But inviting the wrath of Lily would probably be number one on that list. However, dab responsibly. You're putting things in states of uh, heat retention that are capable of vaporizing material like your skin. So, uh, do respect the dabbing process or pay the penalty for being irresponsible. Uh, and before I get back to the ROTE yeah, you know me. I think now 
<laughs> that I must be an NPC. And let me give you the, the latest data point that makes me say, fuck yeah. Um, I've always wanted to try stand-up comedy. It just has always looked rather fucking easy to me. And <clears throat> I say this because I am very comfortable as a storyteller, especially a storyteller of self-deprecating stories that are in some way comedic in nature. This is how I got through life. And uh, so I also think I have an inclination toward the skill set that makes one uh, relatable and uh, likable on stage because I think 99% <clears throat> of being an effective comedian is having the audience like you. It really doesn't matter if you're that funny. If the stories you tell are endearing and meaningful, <clears throat> there will be a connection that is appreciated. You may not be thought of as the funniest man in America, but you won't be thought of so as somebody I want to get my money back for. And, yeah, that's a wide range of landing zone. But if you figure that's the landing zone between feeling like you got something done and you were the best in the industry, well, <laughs> isn't that kind of the landing zone we're all shooting for no matter what we're doing? So, <clears throat> with that wide of a gap, I just thought it was something I'd be able to hit. Because... Being funny, I think, in some ways, is second nature to people. And I think you develop this if you are in a position where maybe you're not uh, confident, you're shy, you're socially awkward, you're um, inclined toward in being introverted, uh, you like being alone. Whatever it is that can make you feel like you have to develop a comedic sense to most regularly fit into the world? Well, those people are not just inclined toward it, but they're honing it. And you hone it because it's always got to be ready to go. You never know when it's got to come up and fire off to protect you in situations in which you feel vulnerable otherwise. So imagine <clears throat> that the people who are truly good at it are the ones who start to recognize that they can make their friends laugh pretty regularly. You even start to know who these people are in your friends because they make you laugh regularly. You like being out with them because at least Bruce will be there. That motherfucker's funny. <clears throat> so you, uh, you, <laughs> you come to, at some point in life, see yourself as in the club of jokesters. Uh, I had a very good friend in college who was an immediate uh, quiver, or, or arrow in my quiver of people I thought was funny from the first time I met him. We had very similar approaches to life. We actually moved out to Oregon together. We were both defensive comedians. And the defensive comedians are the ones who you can recognize have to use comedy to get out of anything vulnerably serious in life. In other words, you start to wonder if all they do is make fun of everything because they never seem to be able to have a serious moment. Now, this isn't where Rick was, but this is what Rick had come from. Rick moved on to, if I remember right, uh, become an agent in the NBA. I mean, this is... But he was... He had gone to joke camp when he was in high school or junior high. I'm not sure. Probably junior high, if I had to guess. But, and I, I remember even when he told me this, I was like, what do you mean joke camp? <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> and, uh, and still, I got to admit, I still think that's one of the more uh, uh, sketch-ready ideas there is. But regardless, and do you know that my phone changed regardless to irregardless on me? It did. Um, the, yeah, it did. The, uh, 
the, the, the truth is these people self-identify because <clears throat> they're hurt. Like, and, and what I didn't know until I was about 40, and, and I didn't even really know it until I was 45, I started considering possibilities like this at 40 because I'd run out of other possibilities. Um, that maybe I was damaged. And, and then I thought, well, I'm broken. I'm just flawed. I have somehow been given 98% of the equation to succeed, but the 2% that is counterbalancing that is fucking nuclear. It's ridiculously infective. And that was wrong because I had been hurt. And until I identified what the hurt was, and it was subtle, <laughs> it, was, it was maybe 1%, 0.1%, but it was infectious to the body, the politic, the mind, the outlook, everything. It fucked me up. And that is... I lived in a house with two parents who did not love each other. And I knew it. And they were direct about it. But it wasn't a partnership. It was penance. <laughs> and uh, why they did it? Fuck, I don't know. I really don't. And they'll, in their naive forward-looking youthful decision of not getting divorced will claim it was for the children's sake. Well, let me tell you this. Do you know the only thing that needs to happen in the world for the children to be fine is for the fucking adults to tell them the truth. <laughs> and if you don't give your children or the citizens around you or the underlings in your care or the goddamn president of the United States the fucking truth, well, then you're the problem. And... Having grown up in a house filled with lies, I can say the truth truly did save my life. <clears throat> because until I started spitting out truth like a dot matrix printer, well, everything uh, in the universe, in my orbit, had shade in it. Because I wasn't willing to admit the fallibility of humanity. Because nobody in my family ever showed me that that was okay. Well, <clears throat> I'm here to tell you, not only is that okay, but it's preferred. Because if you can't go around this existence realizing that mistakes are here for you to say, oh, well, there's something I can do better. It, it, imagine being perfect. <laughs> like, nothing that goes through your day does anything but work out exactly as you want it to. Would life even be interesting at all? Because wherever you turn around next, it would be exactly what you were hoping for. Well, literally, what's the difference between that and a goldfish with five seconds of memory? Every five seconds, it's a brand new world. This goldfish bowl goes on forever. Everything just continues to work out. Hey, do you have any medium to slightly over medium salsa with no corn in it? Oh, this bowl right here next to me is perfect. Thank you. I didn't even know it was there. What kind of life is that? The kind of life where you look back and say, man, fuck. <sighs> Why'd I do that? What was I doing that day that even led to that? How did that happen? Well... All right, so next time I'm in this situation, blah, 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 right? And then bang, three years later, all of a sudden something happens and you handle it. Just like you had predicted you might be able to back in that conversation with yourself. Okay, well, what's that moment like? Well, it feels like your life had a little spurt of fulfillment. You actually... Can A, B, C direct line relate to your own progression as a better creature of the universe? Fuck yeah, I am. Booyah. Okay, so 
imagine back to the com comedians that among the cream of the crop are those that never pick up the fucking microphone. For various reasons. But that does not make you stop being a comedian. For some of us, comedy is the only answer to this world. I don't, I don't even, this, the tears that are coming out of my eyes are like angry. I get so frustrated. There is no reason that we should have defensive comedians even existing in a world filled with attack. Those of us who refuse to play have to defend ourselves somehow. And then I have to fight my instincts constantly. I don't want to be aggressive. I'm not here to push you down so I can elevate. I can't imagine feeling worse about myself. So you learn to lap it off. Swallow whatever pain society makes you endure. It's just, it's a story we all have to tell. It's just, some of us are more committed to the bit. So after 53 years of living like a church mouse, never finding any kind of purpose and corporate structure never fitting into a society filled with look at mirrors never wanting to befriend a group of stabby in the backers always believing that really the only thing you could trust in this world are dogs well trust me you've probably spent a lot of time with some angry tears, but you spent a lot of other time sneaking by, glossing by, and just making it work by making those around you laugh. And I work my ass off too. It's not like I'm lazy. I don't not want to contribute. None of that shit, right? But I don't find purpose working at Home Depot. That is just hours of your week that you'll have to endure. You don't want to do it. But if you don't do it, you can't pay your fucking Walmart dog food bag bill, so you do it. That's us. That's life. And, uh, and so if... The truly gifted communicators were able to endure enough of life that before they actually took the stage, they kind of knew what the fuck life was about. I mean, I don't want to show so much 
hubris is to think I figured anything out. But I do know some things you do not want to live your life according to. And I also know some conundrums that will exist in your head until you snuff out. They're unsolvable. So how much time you spend obsessing over them? Well, that's, I guess, your decision. But I obsessed over a lot of things that I couldn't do anything about. The state of humanity. Well, believe it or not, that's the one obsession I think I can do something about. Because I don't care who you are. I don't care what state of fallen grace you think you currently exist within. There is no better destiny, purpose, and direction than going somewhere that gives you purpose feels like destiny, and embraces a direction you can maintain. I've saved this journey to this point in life because at no other point could I have ascended and survived. I'd be dead. And I think at a time when voices need to look to collect among us, the best among us. And I don't mean singling out those who are excellent. I mean that which is best in you. There's, uh, in a room filled with a hundred people, you're the best at something. And when, uh, when you believe that you have the potential to be able to say that against all of us, well, then you'll have the level of self-love that's necessary for us to truly ascend. We all have to believe it, because it's true. And I figured, since that message is the least publicized and most needed theme out there, well, <sighs> that would better humanity. So, I may not be able to fix the economy. I may not even be able to tell you what level of representative government we should be striving toward next. Although, government by lottery, I'm serious. I want to at least have that discussion. But, I do know how to believe in everybody that I know. Because I believe in all of them. I believe, I see the best in everybody. And call it a curse... Call it whatever you want, but it's undeniably who I am. And since it seems like somehow those of us that insist on finding the worst in us are the ones that have taken charge, well, I can't exactly abide by the systems that they've created. I don't think any of us feel like we've got our life filled with purpose, destiny, and direction to the point that it's undeniably going the best it can possibly go. I don't even think any among us can claim that we're halfway there. And yet, deciding that we're all valuable enough to find a way we can all get there is the only thing stopping us from ascending and all getting there. Even the lunatics in Washington, they may not deserve to have much say in how we're getting there, but they deserve to come along for the ride. <sighs> All right. I don't know why I'm being so serious today, but uh, I really do need to blow my nose at this point because I'm dripping snot all over. So hang on. Uh, okay. Man. These off-the-rail rants that I lay out there are... Um, are so immediately forgotten. I can't even really remember what I was talking about just now. I mean, I know I burst into angry tears over um, the idea that society is so gnarled up. We create defensive mechanisms among us that are strictly unnecessary. But 
at least if that flows into some sort of comedic response, might get a laugh. All right. Um, I just was, for the last two weeks, I've been trying to set myself into a mindset of structural joke. The two biggest hurdles to anyone who thinks they're funny actually trying stand-up are, in my opinion, number one, stage fright, number two, structural jokes. In your group of friends who know you and you regularly converse with, being the funny one's not tough. You already know what Gene's insecurities are. You already know what hang-ups Bill has about work. You already know the entire film catalog that Marion always recites. I mean, you can play off people's backstories, their bigger picture. You can easily make fun comments in a world filled with context in which to work. But walk into a room filled with strangers and make them laugh. It's a totally different gimmick. And <clears throat> so much so that the subtext of comedy, onstage comedy, has evolved to include a whole different way, or a variety of ways, excuse me, of approaching it. Because really, what you're trying to do in this art form is keep the audience engaged enough that they don't want you to stop. They just want you to, well, okay, well, what's the next thing? I mean, if you're interesting enough that I want to hear your next thing, well, then you're doing your job. And that doesn't mean that you want to go up into this format with a point-by-point -point lecture regarding the structural inaccuracies of the Big Bang. While that material may actually be compelling, the audience isn't primed for it and doesn't really have the width to accept that as a substitute for, I came here to laugh. So you don't just get to dictate terms to the audience, but you have so much latitude that you can approach it in any direction that at least you feel you can remain compelling. And <clears throat> if you can't get someone to laugh, well, then perhaps you should be in a different vertical. But compelling is number one. And number two isn't even laugh. Number two is ingratiate. Make them like you. Just do it. And leave them laughing. Those three things will make you successful every time you step on stage. And because I've simplified it to that level, I'm overflowing <laughs> with ways to approach it. Like, it's ridiculous. I have a, I have a notebook I now keep at hand because I tried to keep a little one. It was, I couldn't. I can't really write fast enough, which is crazy. So I also have a bunch of recordings. It's, I can't stop the fountain of comedic innovation in my head. And I don't want to share a lot of it, but um, I am going to do my top 10, the 10 levels of comedy I think exist when you're really thinking about how to separate out who's funny, what's funny, what the levels of funny are. And there's one guy that's tough to fucking slot because he's either as great as everybody or the amalgamation of all the greatness that's come up so far. It's hard to say which. And that's Mr. Dave Chappelle. But I don't mean disrespect by having Dave Chappelle on the list at five. At all. He could easily... Well, he couldn't be number one, but and he couldn't be number two. But he could easily be number three. Three, four, and five are the same guy, really. I mean, they're not. That's the point. But they are all equal. It should be three, four, five. As a matter of fact, I will change the list to be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's the way the list should be written. And Chappelle's in the 345 with Pryor and Carlin. <clears throat> so anyway, 
I, I'm really trying to, for the first time in my life, take this seriously because I've eradicated the number one fear. Now, why did I eradicate it? I don't know. I really, again, claim this starts to prove I'm an NPC. Because we're going to go back to an event in my sixth grade fucking classroom. Well, it wasn't even in the classroom. It was in the auditorium. On stage for a spelling bee. That I was an overwhelming favorite. So much the favorite that uh, I would say almost all the other kids didn't want to participate because they couldn't win. It was that level of favorite. And it was that level of favorite because the year before, and the way spelling bees worked in my elementary school, they were they were blocked into the third, fourth, and the fifth, sixth. And they happened uh, on consecutive days, or maybe even on the same day. I can't remember. Probably the same day. Why would you ruin two days for spelling bees? But the fifth, sixth group was the group that could go for a while because A, you had kids who now could spell, um, and B, the kids who were committed to spelling had read a lot. Uh, if they got up against each other, could go turn you know twenty five turns, because words, the the level of elementary school spelling bee words to knock kids out, um, if you can really spell is is long. <laughs> um, this is not the the national spelling bee. You're spelling words like yesterday. You know what I'm saying. And so, in the fifth, sixth grade round, it came down to me in fifth grade versus Shifra Rafael in sixth grade. And I'll admit, Shifra Rafael was smarter than me. Shifra Rafael and Thomas Talbot and Chuck Akins are three people I've been close enough in life to say are smarter than me, for sure. There are a lot of people in the world I think are as smart as me, but those three were smarter. There was a level of insight and just calculation that separated those three from what I'd ever run into otherwise. Now, I haven't run into everyone in the world, and I don't think there are that many people that I will ever think are smarter than me, but they're out there. They're for sure out there. And I'm sure there's people who are so much smarter than me, I wouldn't even be able to see how much smarter than me they are. So I just assume everybody is at least as smart as me or possibly smarter than me. But these three were for sure. And yet, in fifth grade, against Shifra Rafael, I had a chance to take her down. But I misspelled, I think, priority. I've tried to remember what word it was that I misspelled that she then went on to spell correctly and spell the next word correctly to beat me. But I had the chance because she misspelled something and I spelled it correctly. Then I misspelled the next word. She spelled it correctly. She spelled the next word correctly and beat me. After we'd gone almost an hour against each other heads up to the point there was a break because <laughs> I had to pee. And uh, so in the longest spelling bee, probably in Steck history, the next year, well, it was me against everybody else. And since I had been the number two guy the year that it had gone an hour, well, of course, nobody else wanted to play. And... <clears throat> So, the way that the spelling bee was seated, they got eight kids from each classroom, the fifth and the sixth grade class, by having their own spelling bees in the class, which, of course, I won handily. Nobody gave a shit. Once you're in, you're in. So, once it was down to nine, well, then whoever got out next. So, there was no real reason to take that one all the way down to one, but they did because you got awarded a certificate. I still have the thing. And then if you won the school spelling bee, you got a trophy. And if you came in second, you got a runner-up trophy, because I have that one too. But, so going into sixth grade, there are 16 of us on stage. We've all spelled our first word. I think you get a three-letter word first. And I'm the, the last one to spell in the second round. And all, everybody, actually, one kid goes down here, I think, if I remember right. Yes, for sure, for sure, because I wasn't the first one out. I was the second one out. So a kid goes down. And it's my turn. I step up to the microphone. I get the word rope. I even ask for it to be used in a sentence because I'm aware there's a second spelling for rote. I know there's an R-O-T-E out there. And they say uh, something like, John F. Kennedy wrote his autobiography himself. And I say, rote. 
WRT wrote, and they call me out. Now, I swear to this day I said the W. I can't imagine I didn't. But the foul I'm called for is not saying the W. And I think to myself, I'm out? I mean, the judges have called me out. There, uh, there is no appeal process or anything of the kind. I'm literally dazed on stage. I don't understand that I've been eliminated. It isn't a possibility for me. And they actually tell me I have to leave the stage. I, I must have stood there stunned for, what, five, ten seconds? I really don't know. It's one of those moments that I can still very much picture the whole view of what I was going through. But how much time it took, I have no idea. But I remember getting called down from the stage. And when you got called down, you had to take your placard off. And my placard was number one. And the kid down there was like 19 or something. Because the other placard on the stage sitting there was a low number. And all of it's starting to come together for me. And then I sit in the in the seat and I must have started crying. I mean, I don't remember doing that. I just remember getting like anxiety. This is the first anxiety experience of my life for sure. Well, the first one that I can pinpoint as anxiety <clears throat> because again, I'm sure I said the W I know there's two words here. It's not like I, and, and my clarity on this point is so much a misunderstanding of how I could have fucked that up, but I must have. Like, nobody in the audience is saying, he said W. So I clearly must have just said R-O-T-E. And, <clears throat> okay. The lessons from this day are immense, unfortunately. And one of them is it matters not at all what you see somebody do once in the moment of any kind because you never know who might themselves be going through something so surreal that they don't even understand what's going on. This is so not representative of who they are that they can't reconcile the moment. It's all a mystery even to them how this is going down this way. But it is. And I was the best spelling kid in that school, possibly in fifth grade, but absolutely in sixth grade. There's no question about it. But I was 19th out of 20 when it came to the show us what you got. So... That moment, if that's all you know me by, or if that's all I hold myself accountable to, well, it's by far my greatest failure. And so coming away from that, I fear failing now more than anything. Because to have failed at this level is shocking to me. And I'm in sixth fucking grade. I'm having an anxiety attack about my utterly horrific performance. I'm a sixth grader, and I'm going through a midlife crisis. <laughs> Seriously. And it has cost me so much in life to have done that performance on that day and to have lived accountable to it ever since. That when I finally let go of that, which is what I assume happened seven years ago, my whole life just started over in a capacity that makes sense. I even told my parents, I feel like I'm <laughs> my 10-year-old self again. <sighs> For whatever reason, on that day, I chose to allow myself to feel like I had let everything down. Ah, when in reality, 
the only thing I'd done was let myself down. <sighs> because the standard of perfection that I then aspired to was ridiculous. Unsustainable on any level. And certainly was a kind of barrier to any attempt to expand my life into something meaningful, rewarding, but challenging, and certainly filled with hurdles, if not outright failure. So, get on stage? Fuck no. Fuck no. I mean, I couldn't even get on stage for the credit I needed in high school in drama. I was too afraid to do one line. So they made me production director or some stupid thing. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's paralyzing. It always has been. And I can talk in front of a room full of people, a hundred people, no problem. A thousand people probably, I've just never done it. But put me on stage in front of 15 and it freaked the fuck out. So, could I have gotten away from that? I don't know. I don't know. I was set up for that moment to wreck my life. And that's hyperbole. I agree. But what it's done is it's meant I've always thought if you go in prepared and then let yourself down, it's your fault. And yet there's all kinds of ways in life that you can go in prepared and let yourself down. It just happens. So having thought that somehow that was conquerable, I just further and further evaporated from finding something truly challenging and rewarding to pursue in life. I just accepted whatever came, and it just rolled into a consequence of nothing in life have I really self-determined and, and achieved. I just allowed life to happen. And I didn't not experience a whole width of activity. I absolutely did. But how much depth and meaning did my life actually accumulate? Not a whole lot. A whole lot of experience and not a whole lot of connection, at least to myself, until recently. And then after finding that my life had basically, like some idiotic pinball machine, been firing all sorts of directions for reasons even the player doesn't understand, well, it all started making a lot of sense. And to describe myself as having returned to my 10-year-old self that had uh, almost beaten Schiffer or fell, well, if ever I thought my potential is unlimited, well, that was the day. I mean, fuck. I almost beat Schiffer Ravel. This is the smartest person I'd ever known. <sighs> and even to this day, fuck, man. I went all the way through high school with Schiffer. Schiffer was fucking special. But uh, having lost that next year, well... If you didn't know me, those 365 days in between, somewhere in there, but after that, I was beating myself up because I let that day always have some level of placement in my judgment against myself. And, oh my God, talk about, what the fuck, man? Why even do that? I don't know. I don't know. But my life then just turned into the pursuit of the now. 
I want as much now to go right as I can. I don't want to live with the possibility that tomorrow's going to fail because I'm not prepared enough. I'm just going to live in the now. Whatever happens now, happens now. Tomorrow, I don't even know. So, having that level of investment in my own future means here I am with eight bucks in my bank account and no real idea what to do except to go help the universe find its soul, or at least humanity. So, we'll see what happens. But if that's really what I'm driven to do... Well, then how can I not be a fucking NPC? A moment when I was 12 or 11. I wasn't even 12. Until I'm, what, 47, 8? Impacts my life to a point that it goes a very specific direction. I then, somehow, in the new updated 2.0 version of myself, start to reconcile all of my philosophical underpinnings that are vexing and contaminating the entire thought structure my life has been obsessed with. It all starts falling into place. And then, compelled mostly by characters in my dreams to get my message out, to speak to the people, to be heard, well, here I am. If that's not a fucking NPC, <laughs> what would it look like? <sighs> I don't even think there is an answer. Because we all know. Yeah, bro. Probably are an NPC. Alright, well, the way I look at it then, somebody in this universe should be offering me employment today so that I can get more than eight bucks in my account. Or I gotta sell some shit. Alright. <sighs> I'm going to finish this with what I consider to be the delineation of funny. Like, if you're... Well, and there's... Okay, so there's 11. Because puns can't even make the list. You don't get to be funny because you say you're funny. Funny is about how people react to you. Do people laugh? Do people feel a swelling of empathy? Do people all of a sudden bust out their checkbooks and start donating money to causes. What effect do you have on people? Do people turn their head with a slight look of disgust? However it is that the world reacts to you, is how the world reacts to you. And puns aren't funny. So they don't make the list. But George Bush doesn't make the list either. Although he's had moments of comedy in his life, he's not funny. Knock-knock jokes are ten. There is the baseline of what starts funny. Because it's the first thing as a kid you see the clever variation of possibility among. Therefore, it's got texture. There's more than just that momentary comment of, wow, that was clever. No, knock-knock jokes are baseline funny. They offer enough innovation and comedic variation to start the list of, okay, well, you're knock-knock joke funny. <clears throat> so there's my list. Anything below that, puns, um, the family circle, um, hmm, Trying to think of other pedestrian attempts at humor. Well, uh, and not that the family circle doesn't do its thing, but it belongs more on like the recipes page than in the comedy page. Um, okay, above knock knock jokes, I have Gallagher. Because, okay, Gallagher represents the kind of comedy that. You don't even necessarily have to know the language. You just kind of have to be there. And you can walk away saying, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I saw that show. I, I liked it. it was, 
I mean, yeah, I guess fucking funny, right? Whatever. So that sort of comedy that is um, so uh, physically or demonstrably uh, presented that texture isn't even a question. It's the joke. And then in the eighth slot, I have Mr. Adam Sandler. Because at some level, all of us think Adam Sandler's funny. And at some level, all of us think Adam Sandler's fucking stupid. And uh, I don't know if there's a more... (laughs) um, The joke's on you, comedian, looking at us, than Adam Sandler. He might be the cleverest motherfucker in Hollywood. And... I have a feeling that Adam Sandler's soul could be ancient. But, Big Daddy? Oh, I mean, Little Nicky? It's it's ingenious presentation, I suppose. Adam Sandler is like the packaging around uh, the fucking shitty plastic packaging, you appreciate that it's like so perfectly molded, but fuck man, is it a pain in the ass sometimes to deal with it. All right. Uh, And so he's in the seventh slot. And then above him, I have Drew Carey. Now, there is a huge argument that Adam Sandler's funnier than Drew Carey. There is a huge argument that Drew Carey's funnier than Adam Sandler. So this isn't necessarily about your comedy, but Drew Carey starts to minimize the, oh, that was fucking horrible factor. He's the first comic on my list that is mass appealing. That's his gig. He's mass appealing. He's the kind of guy that fucking everyone in the office thinks is funny. Because he's funny. But he's never going to threaten the list of greatest comedic minds of all time. But he's never not going to be funny. He's just that dude. He's literally the dude that can be funny about most stuff. So, Drew Carey is Tim Allen. Well, no, because Tim Allen really has more of an audience bent than Drew Carey. Drew Carey, uh, but Jim Gaffigan is is better than Drew Carey. Um, Fuck, who's a Drew Carey comp? Um, Hmm. I'll think about that. I mean, let me think of who's on TV, because that's who to think of. A Drew Carey comp... Is, is Jay Leno. All right. Bill Burr is number five. No, number six. Number six. Bill Burr could almost be in the 345, but he's not in the 345 because he's Bill Burr. Bill Burr is an insanely good comic. He is as, he is as good a comic as is alive. He's as good a comic as George Carlin. But Bill Burr's not as good a human as... He's not as... Bill Burr doesn't have enough figured out to make the list of the seminal greats. He's still investigating. His life pursuit is so interesting that it's compelling enough for him to keep telling it to us, but Bill Burr still has fucking shit to figure out. So he is a great comedian, but he is not... Dave Chappelle, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, who do have life figured out. And that's what makes them three, four, five. They're all as good as each other. You can argue them to the end of time. And there's a reason number two and number one are above them. But they're, they're the greatest comedians of my generation. And that's the level of insight and brilliance that they all are at their best is another reason not to get on stage because they've already won the game. That's how good they were. And again, it really doesn't matter how much you see as your potential success. So long as you know your failure limit is something you can live with. Who gives a shit how good you are? It doesn't matter. That's not what 
you're even here for. That's the reaction of the world to you. You have no control over that. You have control over how much of it you can resonate with from within and appreciate regardless of the reaction without. And any other time I would have thought of doing this, it would have been for the accolades. I would have needed them. I would have been desperate for them. Now I don't even give a shit. Like, I'm actually thinking, I wonder if I should go up on my first open mic with the worst stuff I think I have so that I can see what my baseline for bombing material is on night one. Because I'm so confident that I don't care what the audience thinks. I want to know what they think because it's relevant. It's a data point I have to take into consideration, but it won't determine anything about my creative process until there's a resonating factor in which I can gauge their variation enough to have some fucking water under the bridge. I have none of that. Therefore, it's irrelevant. But it's still interesting to me because I have 53 years of experience of trying to make people laugh. So it's not like I don't have an audience in my head. It's just I don't have a they-don't-know-me audience. So there, guys like Richard Pryor, George Carlin, and Dave Chappelle, who work an audience at a stadium level like he's in a living room, well, fuck, man. Unbelievable. Okay, now, before I get to two and one, I have to pay attention to the fact that, and I recognize this, but I don't think it's fair that I would have put any of the others on here just to put them on here. And that is, there's no women on my list. Okay. Um, I think there are as many emerging comics who are female that are potentially the next greatest comic in the world as there are male. But why are there no truly Hall of Fame comedians, comedians, in their 40s and 50s right now. And I will take, um, uh, 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 oh my God, I can't believe I can't think. Maria? I'll think of her name before the end of this. I have a very, I have a favorite female comic. And I'm blanking on her name right now. No, I can't blank on her name. I have to go get her. Hang on. Okay, it took me nine seconds to think of Maria Bamford. I'm sorry. But, I wouldn't even have her number one on my list because number one female comedian of all time is definitely Joan Rivers. And I don't say definitely Joan Rivers because Lucille Ball isn't in my thought process. Lucille Ball is in my thought process. But the more that I think about what Lucille Ball represents, she represents the right woman at the right time with the right attitude. Um, I'm not saying she's not funny. But Joan Rivers carved into the comfort zone of America. Lucille Ball fell into her comfort zone. And the world was ready for a, an obnoxious housewife comedian. It was. And what um, what uh, Roseanne Barr has done with that uh, image since, I think supersedes actually what Lucille Ball even did with it. So Roseanne Barr would be my number two. Now, why isn't Maria Bamford my number one? Maria Bamford is a... Uh, a mind of her own. I am fascinated by the way Maria Bamford sees the world, and I resonate with her sense of humor. But what Roseanne Barr and Joan Rivers did is culturally uh, significant. And Bamford is like, uh, she is a comedian's comedian. I find her and a lot of other comedians of today, a voice badly needed. But I don't want to dismiss female comedy. I'm all for it. I want to see more of it. I, I am begging for the matriarchy. So I didn't want to let this list be dismissive of women because it shouldn't be. All right. Number two. Uh, well, I know who's number two and number one. So number two. Number two on my list, if you're this level of funny, well then, uh, I mean, oh God, then you've overcome the, the worst in our humanity. 
you're so funny that the devil comes up to watch your show. And that's Red Fox. I'm, Jesus, I don't know why this is making me emotional. All right, I'm, I'm young, I'm old enough, I mean, to have been young enough to have seen Sanford and Son replays. And so I have some idea where Red Fox ended up. And I, <laughs> my sister and I would watch every one of those. Bum, 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 and his, his influence on comedy created Richard Pryor. He is, he is to comedy what Jackie Robinson is to baseball. He was a funny black man before the civil rights movement that was so goddamn funny, Southern KKK hooded chieftains came to his show. He broke every barrier possible because when people would kill you if your mouth didn't work, but because your mouth works, they will pay to see you on stage. Holy shit. I mean, you literally overcome homicide. <sighs> to do what Red Fox did, I don't know if, I don't want to see society get to a point that that's even possible. Maybe it is right now. A lot of hate in the world. But, it, it, he literally changed people's opinions of themselves. That maybe there was some <laughs> potential love in their hearts that they were locking away. Because this man, he's funny. I don't care that he's black. In a land filled with blackface comedy, Red Fox was legit. <sighs> I mean, he can't be anywhere near the cultural relevancy that man was in a day of look at me. His influence, his presence, his achievements, the amount of material. Well, he's number two. And Number one on my list is a weird one, I admit. But I've always thought uh, comedy is as much about endurance as it is about anything else. Endurance and believing in yourself. And no one... Uh, Alright, I'm going to try to chill out a little bit here. But no one represents those two components of comedy to me any more than Carrot Top. And I say this because I've never seen a target from within its own industry picked on more than Carrot Top. Every comedian has a Carrot Top joke. You hear him now and again, not anymore as much as you used to. But he was the pinata for comedy itself. And of course for culture at large. He was uh, part Lauren Caitlin Up Upton, part uh, uh, Anthony Michael Hall, part um, can't even think of other entertainers that Carrot Top composes, but his belief in himself, his determination to prove. He belonged. Well, he represents to me the, the biggest questions you have about yourself. How determined am I? What level of headwind can I face? 
improve. I don't fucking care. This is the direction I'm going. Join me or fall behind. <sighs> to me, that's what the world doesn't have right now. It doesn't have enough people saying, listen, it's not about anything other than the direction. This matters. I'm heading this way. I'm bringing people with me. And you're either coming or we're leaving you here. But we're not going to live like this. We're not going to live in this system of broken people sniping at each other for no reason and offering solutions that don't exist. It's an absurdity that has to stop. And if determination and self-belief are what's keeping us from doing it, well, I'm now determined. I don't think anyone believes in themselves more than me, despite all the fucking tears. Don't even fucking pay attention to that. I'm just emotional. But it's, it's, it's got to come from the conversation of don't we all deserve better? Well, then let's work toward it. I mean, why is anybody doing anything other than working toward making it all better? Well, that's the conversation that needs to start happening. And so I put Carrot Top as, in my esti- my personal estimation, what represents comedy at the highest form. Because ultimately, you're here to be compelling. You're here to offer your uh, your personal point of view in a relatable conversation that hopefully leaves them laughing. And I don't think Caratop did that every day. I'm not saying he succeeded every time he went out. But... He faced more adversity in the industry than anybody else I ever saw. And by all measures of success, won. So, could Red Fox be number one and Carrot Top number two? Sure. But, the way my world worked, Well, I'm neither, but I'm certainly more carrot dog.